Thank you uh, for the introduction. Thank you all for, for having me. It's a real thrill to be here and uh, quite a change from, from Guangzhou, where I've been for the last, uh, last month, and from Jakarta, where I was a bit before that, and also from Bloomington, where I've been uh, before that. Um, I've been working on issues of uh, standards and certification for almost 10 years now, um, initially focused on the rise of, of certification in private regulatory systems. Um, and it's really in the last couple of years that I've started to look in more detail at the implementation of standards. Um, and so what I'm going to tell you today is sort of an attempt to um, compile some things from my own research, from other research that's been done, to think about uh, the, the sort of implications and the meaning of standards and certification of labor, labor conditions. And I'm going to try to get through, uh, through a lot and try to watch the time and, and see, how, see how this all goes. Um, I should say, I think that this series is, um, is especially exciting to me because in addition to looking at labor standards, um, I also study forest certification um, and try to think about the relationships and the comparisons across different types of certification. So I'm really happy to see uh, a group of other people uh, asking some, some of those types of questions. And I hope we'll get a chance to talk about that um, later today. This one, yeah? No, this one. Uh, in the early 1990s, when activists first uh, accused apparel and footwear brands of profiting from exploitation, child labor, and the suppression of labor rights in their supply chains, most companies responded by initially denying responsibility, uh, given that they didn't directly own the factories that were being, uh, being talked about. So in 1992, when Walmart's CEO was confronted uh, on TV uh, and shown images of child labor in a Bangladesh factory that was producing for Walmart, he famously said, quote, uh, the pictures you showed mean nothing to me. And he, uh, he both denied responsibility and he minimized uh, the, the uh, significance of, of what was in the pictures. Um, over the next uh, several years after that, from the mid-1990s on, uh, labor and anti-sweatshop activists in uh, North America and Europe uh, named and shamed just about all of the major uh, apparel footwear brands and retailers. Uh, certainly the most, the most visible ones. And you see images of a few of these uh, campaigns in the background. Uh, these campaigns exposed an industry or uh, made, made public more information about an industry that was based on layers of contracting and subcontracting, given that the vast majority of apparel and footwear uh, companies, brands that we know, don't own their own factories, um, which is why they initially de denied responsibility. Uh, a workforce uh, throughout the world uh, comprised mainly of migrant laborers, often uh, vulnerable and often uh, owing uh, money and, and, and other things to, uh, to recruiters that brought them from rural areas uh, into cities where the factories are. A uh, payment that was often low relative to other manufacturing industries, uh, but also often below the minimum wage, often paid late, and sometimes not paid at all. For instance, if a factory shut down and left town before workers could, uh, could claim the wages that they're owed. Uh, it's an industry that's been based on long and, and uh, extremely fluctuating hours with up to 12 to 16 hour workdays, uh, standard during peak seasons. Um, and it's a case where there's been uh, some, a lot of documentation of, of harsh, harsh treatment by, by supervisors, including both verbal and physical abuse. Um, in addition, a repression of unions has been uh, quite common in, in this industry, both in terms of the countries where brands have, have chosen to source, many of which restrict the rights of, of workers to, to form unions, and also in particular cases where workers have attempted to, to form unions and factory management has often responded uh, quite negatively to that. Now, 
By the late 1990s, brands were no longer ignoring these claims or denying responsibility uh, for, for conditions in the factories. Instead, they were positioning themselves as defenders of labor rights and, as, and, and uh, building systems to try to uh, assess conditions in their factories, in their suppliers' factories, and, uh, and improve conditions. By around 2000, essentially all, uh, essentially all firms uh, consumer products firms, large consumer products firms selling in Europe and the US by around 2000 had some sort of code of conduct or set of labor standards for their, for their suppliers. Here you see a couple of, uh, a couple of examples from, uh, from Nike and, and Walmart. Uh, these, these usually spoke to issues like health and safety, uh, restrictions on child labor, uh, uh, legal compliance, as well as uh, statements in many cases about uh, supporting freedom of association. Uh, these, this code of conduct, or this idea of uh, brands adopting policies for their supply chains, uh, diffused really quickly through the industry, uh, including the firms who hadn't themselves been directly targeted by anti-sweatshop activists. So this became uh, quickly a norm, at least among, among large uh, consumer products firms. Many firms also began to, to hire external auditors, to hire uh, monitors to go into factories, and to build their own internal compliance staffs uh, to, to assess uh, conditions in their suppliers' factories. Some firms went one step further, especially those uh, that had been put in the spotlight through activist campaigns and uh, joined or helped to form a variety of, of third-party external monitoring and in some cases certification associations. For instance, uh, the Fair Labor Association uh, created in the US in part by the Clinton administration as well as some NGOs and brands, um, the Ethical Trading Initiative in the UK, based in the UK, uh, and later the Business Social, Social Compliance Initiative uh, based, based in Europe. Uh, some, the, all of these initiatives oversee uh, third-party auditing or monitoring of, uh, of, of uh, factories throughout the world producing for member, member companies. Uh, some brands also encouraged or required suppliers to get their factories certified under a program like SA8, uh, Social Accountability International, uh, which uh, designed the SA8000 standard for factories, uh, or programs uh, developed by industry like, uh, like RAP, Worldwide uh, Responsible Apparel Production, which has now changed its name, um, and as well as the ICTI care process uh, developed by the International Council of Toy Industries. Uh, now these approaches were, were challenged by activists and, and argued to be largely a kind of whitewash of the real problems, and activists themselves then created some of their own uh, monitoring associations and monitoring programs, such as the Worker Rights Consortium in the US and the Fairware Foundation uh, in Europe. So, uh, the creation of these initiatives is part of what I, I call the rise of transnational private regulation. Uh, the initiatives were created in part as a way for companies to respond to criticism and to protect their reputations more effectively. Um, and they were also created in part uh, due to interests of NGOs and governments of building systems for governing labor conditions, for building a kind of regime of labor regulation at the global level given that the perception was that it would be nearly impossible to get governments or intergovernmental organizations like the WTO uh, to take on those kinds of responsibilities. And I've written in the past about that process of, uh, of how these initiatives were created. In the academic literatures that have, that have emerged uh, since, since the 1990s and since the rise of this, uh, what some have called the certification revolution, uh, scholars have argued that there, have pointed to two, two main types of, of benefits 
uh, that, that may be gained from, uh, from certification. So on one hand, the certification uh, solution is, is argued to, to solve the reputation commons problem, that is to solve the problem of, of firms in an industry all having their reputation sullied or tarnished by, uh, by activist campaigns, uh, to keep the market for corporate social responsibility from devolving into kind of a market for lemons in which there was no trust in any claims to, uh, to social responsibility, and by some accounts to provide competitive advantages for, for firms on the leading edge. Um, Overall, scholars have expected third-party certification, especially if governed by a credible multi-stakeholder initiative, including both uh, companies, NGOs, and in this case also uh, unions, uh, to, to be sort of the cream of the crop. That is, to be the, the, uh, the, the arena where we'd expect to see the firms that are the most serious about improving and upholding labor conditions in their, in their suppliers' factories being recognized and supported through certification. Now, scholars have also touted the ability of these systems to, uh, to bypass the state and to create a truly global set of norms. Uh, by some accounts, certification is part of a kind of global moral order that requires some firms to be ritually praised at the same time that other firms are being ritually shamed. Um, by other accounts, and probably more, com more prominent, is, are images of, of certification and of this, these kind of private regulatory programs as transcendent as transcending the state and, and transcending older forms of government, governance. So as John Ruggie put it, uh, quote, despite their many differences, certification institutions share one common feature. Governments are nowhere to be seen in them. Uh, civil society organizations, or CSOs, view governments and intergovernmental processes to be too slow and too unresponsive to rapidly changing societal needs, while companies prefer voluntary initiatives to legislated standards. Um, other scholars have argued that uh, uh, the space for standards-based organizations is greater at the, at the global level where they don't have to compete with state rules and state agencies. Now, a sort of starting point of, of my argument and my analysis today is to note that while that may be true at the, if you focus only on the global level, as you begin to look at the implementation of these standards, uh, states become much more important. Obviously, standards that exist uh, at the global level don't simply float at the global level they get brought into particular domestic contexts. And contrary to the image of regulatory voids, that is of bringing those into settings that, in which there is no law or governance, uh, in, in, just a, in, in every case, in fact, uh, there are laws on the books and there are systems of governance, uh, strong or weak, uh, flawed or, or, or less flawed, that are in operation in, uh, in particular countries. So what I want to do today is uh, talk a little bit about what we know about the operation of these systems, how they work, uh, the role of certification in this broader field of, of private regulation of labor conditions. And in doing so, I want to make two, kind, two main arguments, two sort of over, uh, uh, overarching arguments to what I'll say today. First, uh, different countries produce different kinds of challenges for voluntary labor si systems. Uh, and programs have rarely taken on these challenges uh, with, with a great deal of effectiveness. Um, it's where private standards purport to go beyond what's allowed by national law that they've struggled the most, and especially when this, uh, uh, when this involves empowering rights uh, rather than merely protective standards uh, for workers. So one basic point is that voluntary, piece of, piece of the argument here is that voluntary labor standards have not really transcended the domestic settings in which their implementation occurs. Second, uh, multi-stakeholder certification initiatives do exist, but they play a quite limited role in this arena. 
they, they, they play a very limited role in this uh, whole domain of, of private voluntary initiatives to labor standards. The leading multi-stakeholder initiative, Social Accountability International and its SA8000 standard, um, is neither strong enough in its implementation on the ground, I'll argue, or different enough from other weaker industry-driven systems to really represent a kind of gold standard, uh, a, a signification of the cream of the crop uh, in, this, uh, in this field. Now, uh, the, these arguments don't mean that nothing's changed. And in fact, what I'll also try to do is to, uh, lay out a couple of pathways, a couple of processes by which the rise of, of private regulation of labor standards has actually influenced conditions in factories producing garments, footwear, uh, and so on. Uh, but I'll also point out some of the barriers to those pathways and some of the obstacles that have been hard to, hard to get over. Uh, I'll mainly focus on the apparel and footwear industry, um, in part because that's where my own research focuses, and in part because that's really the, been the origin of these programs. Uh, that is, the, the initial uh, development of certification and, and private regulation was a response to campaigns in the apparel and footwear industry. Um, of course, more recently, the electronics industry is, uh, is sort of the hotbed of much of this activity, and I think many of the arguments uh, that I'll develop about apparel and footwear may also be applied to, to the electronics case. Um, so I'll draw on some existing work as well as my own research, which is very much in progress uh, in, uh, in both China and Indonesia. And I'm going to try to get through a lot, so excuse me for, uh, for sometimes uh, relying on notes and for sometimes speaking, speaking quickly. Okay, um, in my broader research on, on certification, um, I've argued that we need, to pay, we need to pay attention to multiple mechanisms, multiple pathways through which certification initiatives might have impacts at the point of production. Uh, so in a, in a forthcoming chapter in a, uh, on certification as a mode of social regulation, I've laid out a variety of, of, of processes through which certification might actually um, have some impacts. I wanna focus here on the two that I see as most relevant to, uh, to labor standards cases. One is managerial implementation. That is the idea that uh, certification and voluntary labor standards more generally uh, might lead managers to alter some of their practices, to eliminate some especially problematic practices, to introduce new ones, uh, new technologies, new ways of managing workers, uh, and so on. And this can be enforced either by policing from brands or external auditors, uh, as well as through uh, increased relationships between brands and suppliers, as many scholars have argued, uh, is increasingly uh, a powerful force in this field. Now, as, as you look at the, the evidence that's been collected so far on the, the operation of voluntary standard systems, not limited to, but including certification systems, I think we do see improvements uh, that factory managers have made as a result of this kind of scrutiny or, or collaborative activity. Uh, collaborative activity. So for instance, some health and safety conditions clearly have changed. Uh, the toxin uh, um, uh, toluene sorry, uh, was previous, previously ubiquitous as a, as a glue used in footwear manufacturing. Um, it's largely been phased out, at least in the factories producing for major brands like Nike, Adidas, New Balance, and so on. Although, as a, a compliance manager for one of those brands told me, um, it's phased out, quote, except when it's not. Um, and he went on to, to explain that, in fact, the, the, the glue is, in, is uh, it works better than, many, than its substitutes, and sometimes they will still find it being used in factories. Nevertheless, this is one safety, uh, safety hazard that's largely been pushed, pushed out of uh, much of the industry. Uh, 
Um, other kinds of problematic employment practices have not exactly been phased out, but it's clear that they're less common now than they were uh, at the, in, in the early 1990s when these campaigns were first getting underway. So by most accounts, workers now are more likely to be, uh, to be paid a premium for overtime, that is to be paid at a higher rate than normal, uh, to get pay slips, that is to get records of the hours and, and the, um, the rates that they're being paid, although in many cases these are still opaque and difficult to, to unpack, to be provided with protective equipment in the workplace, um, and less likely to be subject to verbal and physical uh, abuse or to extreme amounts of overtime, though neither of these has, has been fully phased out, and, and, and uh, it, it's clear that both of those do still occur. I think many of the changes uh, that we've seen in this arena really can be, can be thought of as a kind of formalization of, of structures for dealing with uh, workers' grievances and for, uh, for more effectively managing human resource, uh, human resource issues. So as an example of this, I want to talk briefly about uh, one of the most important companies in the footwear industry, uh, Pao Chen, or Yu Yuan. Uh, it's a sort of du dual uh, heads of, of, of one company. Uh, UUN or Puchen uh, employs about 280,000 people, uh, mainly in China, uh, Vietnam, and Indonesia at this point. And it supplies, as you can see, to essentially all the major footwear brands. Uh, and it was the subject of much criticism and much uh, attention in the early 1990s and mid-1990s. So for instance, in 1996, it was a Puchen factory in Vietnam where 56 workers were forced as a, as a mode of punishment to run laps around the factory outside in the summer uh, until 12 of them uh, uh, fainted. Uh, this company had developed a reputation for especially militaristic, especially harsh management style in China as well in Indonesia, and for supervisors who were quite ruthless and, uh, and who yelled personal insults uh, when workers weren't uh, meeting production targets. These incidents brought a lot of scrutiny from activists and also from uh, brands like Nike, uh, Reebok, and Adidas. And there's some evidence recently that this scrutiny has in fact paid off, uh, especially in the development of human resource management systems and the elaboration of human resource management systems within uh, UUN factories. So I think what we've seen here is a kind of kindler, gentler form of, uh, of production in a case like this. Uh, UUN and Pochan has developed its own CSR staff at its central office, and in, uh, in, in the factories you'll find compliance staffs charged with uh, managing human resources as well as watching for issues that may be out of compliance with brands' codes of conduct. Uh, in the factory that I visited in Dongguan, a, a large apparel, uh, sorry, a large footwear factory, um, I, I was shown several uh, counseling rooms where workers were uh, encouraged to come and discuss problems and grievances that they might have. Um, and uh, introduced to a worker committee or a worker welfare committee that, the, that UUN had, had developed uh, with the, at the urging of brands like Nike, Adidas, uh, New Balance, and others. Uh, the, the representatives of this committee were elected through what appeared to be a, a real election, or at least a, a, a fair election. Um, and the three, top, uh, the three top candidates actually became permanent full-time employees uh, whose job it was to represent workers to be the head of this committee. Um, on the production lines in this factory, at, in each line, there was a picture of the, the head of the worker welfare committee that worked on that line so that other workers could know who to go to um, if, they had, if they had problems. 
On the other hand, when I talk to the committee members, and, and uh, as, as other researchers have looked at these committees, um, it, the, the committees themselves are not especially empowered or especially uh, aggressive in their demands. Instead, they tend to serve this function of, of increasing communication between workers and management and sort of channeling grievances through internal procedures within the firm rather than uh, allowing them to go, or, or, or in theory, rather than allowing them to go outside the firm. Now, beyond the case of UUN, uh, there, there's evidence that some of, these other, some of these kinds of changes have happened more broadly. So the Ethical Trading Initiative uh, did an assessment study uh, in 2006 uh, in which they looked at a series of factories in, in a, a subset of countries and tried to, using interviews, tried to understand what kinds of things had changed and what kinds of things hadn't. Without going into this any, in any detail, let me just point out that, that the things that were most likely to change, as found through the, uh, the Ethical Trading Initiative study and several other studies of this type, um, have to do with health and safety um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and in working hours, where although problems persist, uh, they, they seem to be less common as the, as, and the, than they were before. All right, so clearly this one route to improvement has in fact occurred in, in some cases. That is, managers have adopted new kinds of practices as, as a result of this scrutiny, uh, but we should remember that these practices tend to be um, uh, more, uh, more paternalistic than they tend to be uh, uh, empowering, and uh, it's not clear in all cases how robust they've actually been over time. All right, a second pathway, a second process by which uh, all this scrutiny and all the codes, codes of conduct and certification standards might matter comes not through what managers do, but what activists might do. So uh, some have argued that uh, codes of conduct might be effectively leveraged by trade unions and, and by labor rights activists to support their causes. For instance, to support the development of new unions that, uh, that truly can represent workers. And this has occurred in a handful of cases, mostly in Latin America, including in Guatemala, Honduras, Dominican Republic, Mexico, but also uh, in, to some extent in, in Sri Lanka and Thailand. So uh, there's two, two famous examples, both involving Nike. Uh, one, in, one involves a Kukdong factory in uh, Puebla, Mexico, where in 2001 a strike was repressed by, by the, uh, the factory management as well as by the local police. A large international campaign was waged and uh, Nike and Reebok eventually became, as the quote uh, here uh, suggests, sort of un uh, un unlikely allies of the workers in their struggle. Uh, in that case, an independent union, uh, a new union was formed uh, through this strike process, was supported by, uh, by Nike and Reebok, and actually gained the power to, to bargain collectively on behalf of the workers. And this was seen as a major success story for both the anti-sweatshop movement and for brands' engagement. Uh, with, with uh, freedom of association standards in their codes of conduct. Uh, one of the most uh, significant recent cases also involves Nike. Uh, so just in the last year, uh, Nike agreed for the first time to contribute money to uh, uh, severance pay for workers that lost their jobs when two of its suppliers in Honduras uh, went out of business. Uh, many, many campaigns have tried to get uh, brands to, to cover this, this severance pay, and they've always failed in the past. And uh, as of this year, there's the sort of first big success in that arena, as suggested by this quote uh, from, from the Worker Rights Consortium, which called this the most positive resolution to a case of unpaid severance in the supply chain of any university or major apparel brand. There are clearly some major, major obstacles uh, to these pathways. So while both pathways have happened to some extent in some cases, 
Um, it's not clear how powerful those, those mechanisms of, of impact really are. One obstacle clearly lies in uh, problems of, of quality in the auditing process. In their influential uh, argument, of, argument about ratcheting, labels, uh, ratcheting labor standards, Sable, O'Rourke, and Fung are predicted that firms would compete on the basis of becoming leaders in the world of CSR, and that auditors would compete in a race to the top, uh, with firms preferring the most qualified, careful auditors. The first of these has happened to some extent. That is, it's clear that firms are competing on their CSR programs, the second of which has almost certainly not happened. Or, although best practices in auditing have become more clear over the last decade and a half, uh, the firms that have developed and used those best practices are not the ones doing the vast majority of the auditing. Uh, instead, it's large general uh, auditors, uh, companies like Bureau Veritas, SGS, Intertech, and others that are typically uh, most often used both by brands and in certification initiatives. Uh, a growing amount of evidence uh, cites major, major problems uh, with the auditing process uh, uh, in, in factories around the world. Um, this takes the, takes the form of falsified records, double and even triple sets of books being kept by factory managers and given to auditors, coaching of workers to give the right answers when auditors come through, um, and in some cases outright corruption, that is bribes and, and extortion uh, happening through the auditing process. Um, as a result of this, even programs like the Ethical Trading Initiative, which was founded on the idea of auditing compliance, um, largely gave up on this, or has at least admitted that there's a crisis uh, in this model. Uh, recently, Bureau Veritas has, has become the subject of, of an expose uh, for their work in China that showed uh, uh, several cases of bribery and extortion, uh, bribery by factory managers as well as extortion of bribes by the auditors themselves. Um, in, one case, in one case, the factory managers uh, recorded the auditor uh, asking for a bribe, but instead of then reporting this to the, to the company, they used it to negotiate for a lower bribe and explained that this was, uh, this was standard in the industry. Um, auditors that I've talked to in, uh, in Indonesia and Vietnam similarly suggest that the audit process is quite frequently uh, corrupt or at least compromised and, and that uh, factory managers, although they are supposed to not know in advance uh, when, when auditors are, come, are, are coming, sometimes do get some advance notice behind the scenes. Now, there are certainly better quality auditors. Uh, there are certainly firms and NGOs that have developed competencies to do high quality auditing, to do off-site interviews with workers, to really understand conditions in the factories. But those firms, such as Verite, uh, Impact, and others, have been de decreasingly likely to be employed at au as auditors. Instead, those firms are often now doing trainings and consultation work, and much of the auditing work is being done by, by the big firms. Second. Uh, a, a second general barrier here. It's clear that the, the rise of private regulation in this field has not altered or not transformed the basic sourcing model, or nor has it integrated compliance issues into sourcing decisions. So as you look at the, the, the logic of the uh, garment and footwear industry, you still see extreme downward pri price pressure. In fact, some have argued that in some countries, pressures for, for suppliers have gone down and made it harder to comply. Um, a shift to lean production that by some accounts puts more stress on workers and makes the work, makes the worst work process more difficult. Uh, and uh, persistent capital mobility, both within countries and between countries. So in China, as wages have gone up in the coastal areas, the, the traditional manufacturing zones, uh, companies have been more likely to move inland 
uh, to take advantage of, of a, a cheaper source of labor. Um, in Indonesia, similarly, companies have, have increasingly moved from Jakarta and several other major manufacturing regions into uh, other parts of the country where the minimum wage levels uh, are lower. Furthermore, the race to the bottom among uh, countries in the global south to attract investment continues. Uh, and and uh, the places where uh, apparel sourcing has increased the most over the last decade, Vietnam, Bangladesh, uh, and India, have largely attracted firms based on their, their low labor costs. Furthermore, uh, it's clear that in all but the most rare of cases, compliance decisions and sourcing decisions are decoupled within firms. So many firms have quite dedicated and, uh, and, and, and sophisticated auditing staffs, but they rarely have the power to shape the decisions of the sourcing staff within the same firm. Uh, here I'm, I'm talking about the brands. Uh, so as, as Locke et al. put it in their uh, recent research on this, uh, while sourcing departments continue to squeeze factories on price, compress lead times, and demand high-quality standards, compliance officers visit the factories and document the problems but do little to change the root causes underlying poor working decisions. Another auditor reported that, quote, if the sourcing department has already sold the sample before I set foot in the factory, I know that we will give them the business no matter what. That is, even though the compliance department is charged with assessing and approving factories, usually their decisions are simply ignored. Here's another table from, from Locke et al.'s research, which shows that a vast majority of factories in some regions, uh, for a particular company that they got access to the, the audit data from, had in fact not been approved or were at least uh, still needed improvement before they could be approved as, as suppliers. This is, these are all suppliers that were currently being used by this particular firm. So in other words, uh, a, a large chunk of, of suppliers that were being used by one firm had actually failed that firm's, that brand's uh, audit procedure. And, and when you talk to compliance officers, they're, they're quite honest about the limits of their power within the firms and, and their, uh, the difficulties that they have in convincing the, the, the sourcing department to, to pay much attention to them. All right. Aside from these general obstacles, it's clear that there are some country-specific obstacles. Uh, that as these, uh, as these global standards are brought into particular domestic settings, they face particular kinds of challenges in different places. Um, perhaps the most notable of these has to do with freedom of association, especially in China and Vietnam, where uh, unions are, are strongly controlled by the state and independent union activity is, is legally prohibited. So in China, the, the ACFTU, the All-China Confederation of Trade Unions, is an arm of the party, an arm of the state, uh, often closely linked to management, and traditionally has had a role not of representing workers, but of controlling workers. Uh, this causes a problem for brands that claim to uphold freedom of association and for certification uh, initiatives that have freedom of association as one of their main, uh, one of their main standards. So what happens? Well, several things happen. Uh, in many cases, freedom of association becomes a blank, uh, becomes something that uh, no one knows quite what to say about. This is a tracking chart from the Fair Labor Association, that is their report on external audits that were done of a factory in China. And all I, want, all I really want you to see here is that the section under freedom of association and collective bargaining is liter literally blank. So in many cases, uh, the, the, this issue is simply overlooked, ignored, or it's decided that there's not much that can be done about it. In a few cases, brands and certification initiatives have tried some really innovative and interesting experiments to sort of get, get beyond and to push past this limitation uh, based on the position of, of trade unions in China. So for instance, uh, one of the most notable of these happened, uh, was, was developed by Reebok in 2001, 2002. 
Uh, Reebok took seriously or decided to take seriously its freedom of association provisions in its code of conduct and it arranged for uh, unions in two of its suppliers' factories to have their representatives elected through democratic elections by the workers in the factory. Uh, they managed to get initial approval from the unions to do this uh, in, in two factories. In the KTS factory in Shenzhen, uh, the, uh, the, union the, the elected union committee initially showed a great deal of promise, but within a couple of years, a change in ownership brought in a new management regime it was much less uh, friendly toward the union, much more hostile, and uh, the union began, there began to be some infighting in the union, and when the time came for the next election, Reebok was essentially shut out of the process, and the union was appointed rather than elected in the next case. In the case of the Shunda factory in Fuzhou, uh, the local trade union was hostile from the beginning, uh, especially when its, uh, its appointee lost quite badly uh, when the election happened. Um, the committee was trained by the union to take a more accommodationist stance toward the, toward the management, and those leaders who attempted to support workers in their conflicts with managers, that is, those elected leaders that attempted to really uh, operate as, as you might expect a union to do, uh, were subject to harassment. Uh, a recent follow-up study returned to this Shunda factory uh, five years later and found the conditions had actually gotten worse. Uh, the the uh, production targets had gone up. Uh, there were over 300 hours of overtime in, uh, in several months, uh, in, or sorry, 300 hours of, of total working time in several months when this uh, study was done, and subsequent, subsequent, uh, subsequent leaders had not been elected, they'd been appointed. Uh, one step down from this are worker committees. Uh, SA 8000, the, S the Social Accountability International Program has promoted worker committees in China as another way to get around the problem of, of limited freedom of association. Without going into this in, in detail, uh, the, the, the evidence is, is quite lacking on whether these worker committees are actually empowered to represent, uh, represent the workforce or not. The limited evidence that does exist does not paint a, a particularly uh, pretty picture. That is, committees are often formed and then disintegrate over time, they're, they're not robust over time, or they're simply not uh, given the, the, the space to develop their own real independent agendas, and instead they serve to kind of channel some grievances uh, through the management hierarchy. In addition, uh, a, a representative of Social Accountability International in China admitted to me that the auditors for SA 8000 quote, tip, uh, really don't understand the purpose of the committee. And they usually assess whether there's an effective committee in a factory simply by asking the management, is there a committee, and by, by taking their word for it. I think for the, for the sake of time, I want to skip uh, a, a couple of cases I was going to talk about in Indonesia. Uh, let me know quickly uh, some, uh, a couple of interesting, interesting facts about Indonesia. Here, freedom of association is real, um, at least for the last 10 years. Um, and you have a, a burgeoning trade union movement, although also a highly fragmented trade union movement. Nevertheless, there are several challenges that brands have faced in implementing their standards in this setting, primarily having to do with contract workers. And by this, I mean uh, short-term, um, as short as three-month contracts that in many cases are repeatedly given to workers over and over again in order to avoid obligations that, that uh, employers might have to, to workers uh, uh, about uh, stability of employment over time. Um, there's several cases that suggest that some brands have tried to surpass, have, have tried to uh, impose their own standards, limiting the use of, of contract and temporary laborers, but that the, the uh, success of that has been quite, quite limited. And I can talk later about uh, the case of SM Global in Tangerang, uh, where I, I've seen some, uh, some of the ways in which that, that attempt went quite wrong and in some ways backfired. All right, in general, uh, com 
those places where uh, codes imply beyond compliance activities are also those where I believe they're most likely to fall short. Um, the record for doing things like promoting union elections and worker committees in China isn't good. Meanwhile, what, what auditors spend a lot of their time doing is assessing compliance with labor law, uh, assessing uh, payment of the minimum wage, appropriate labor contracts, acquired contributions to social insurance, and so on. Furthermore, both factory managers and workers themselves are more attuned to domestic labor law than they are to codes of conduct and certification initiatives, which in many ways are kind of confusing and don't make a lot of sense, especially uh, to workers on the shop floor. I'll, I'll, I'll try to draw out some implications of that uh, as I get to the end really, really quickly here. Okay. Let's talk about certification. In this arena, certification plays a quite limited role. In part because certification initiatives like Social Accountability International, the ICTI process for certifying toy factories, have struggled with many of the same general problems that I talked about before, particularly the problem of, of uh, poor quality auditing. So the ICTI, uh, the International Council of Toy Industries uh, CARE factory certification program, for instance, was recently called into question by, uh, by, by accusations of corruption among their auditors, as well as investigations of factories that found that certified factories were, uh, had excessive amounts of overtime, with workers working up to 70 or 80 hours per week, um, no overtime premium, poor conditions in the dormitory, and ineffective worker representatives. In, in addition, some observers have suggested that factory certification actually makes the problem of audit fraud worse. That is, certification raises the stakes of failing an audit and raises the incentives for factory managers to falsify, uh, to, to withhold information, and so on. Uh, so, as we look at Indonesia and China in particular, uh, you, you can see a couple of, uh, of indications of the challenges of certification. Um, Social Accountability International has, has grown to a very limited extent, and factory certification in Indonesia as a whole has, has uh, remained quite small. Uh, this is somewhat surprising given that Indonesia is a, a legal environment in which potentially you could have freedom of association, and I think you could find factories that, that met the certification standards. Certification has remained uh, at, at low levels, and in addition, some of the factories that have been certified, it's clear, have not had to make uh, very significant changes in order to do that. So, for instance, one, uh, one study of four certified factories uh, showed that, quote, it was cheap and easy to meet SA-8000 or RAP requirements, and all factories were certified no more than a year after deciding to seek certification. On the other hand, it was disappointing to find that the certifications did not replace time-consuming buyer audits. So brands like The Gap and Marks and & Spencer still insisted on inspecting uh, the, the two certified factories even after uh, they were certified. Similarly in China, uh, factory certification has grown quite a bit more than it has in Indonesia, but remains, uh, remains quite limited, and, and serious questions remain about, about quality control there. I'll simply mention that uh, because many of you have probably heard of, of suicides in the Foxconn factory producing iPods and, and other electronic devices, um, what, what you may not have heard was that, that uh, one of the, the Foxconn factories in Shenzhen had previously been SA-8000 certified, and one of its subcontractors uh, continues to be. All right. I want to suggest uh, that, on one hand, uh, the labor standards case for forces us to reconsider the role of third-party certification, which has generated uh, a lot less than, uh, than most theorists would, would lead us to believe to reconsider the role of brands' individual compliance activities, which is probably uh, 
produced more than most uh, theorists would have led us to, to expect, and to force us to really think about the limits that states impose on transnational standards. Finally, I want to suggest one other, uh, one other route. That is, given, given my observations, uh, although my, my focus has really been on trying to understand the operation of these standards as opposed to improve them, um, I, have, I have sort of uh, begun to think about some ways in which we might develop a system that, that's uh, a, a little bit more effective and produces some, some larger changes. So it's clear that the bar, the certification programs that currently exist set a fairly low bar. That is, as opposed to separating the very best companies from everyone else, they separate everyone else from the very worst. Uh, I think we might be better off if uh, a truly high bar certification system emerged that would allow for firms to actually experiment and, and gain support for alternative production models. That is, for redesigning the way the production process works and, and rethinking the global sourcing model and, and the race to the bottom. Uh, uh, if, if such a niche could be, uh, could be built and certified and supported, then I think we might develop some, some room for experimentation and, and possibly even some demonstration effects about the, uh, the, the possibilities for alternative production models. Second, I think auditors might do better to focus more vigorously on legal compliance, uh, and, and firms might, uh, might, might, uh, it, might be worth, it might be worth for firms to think about scaling back some of their claims and focusing on simply enforcing labor laws that do exist in the countries where they're, uh, where they're producing. Um, contrary to the idea of a regulatory void, labor laws exist in all the countries where uh, apparel and footwear is produced. In many cases, they're quite strong, stronger than in the US, stronger than in, uh, than, than in many parts uh, of Europe. And much of what auditors do is already about uh, assessing compliance with those. So I think we might be better off if firms scaled back their claims, um, thought more about legal compliance. Um, finally. I think we need to, uh, at the same time as I'm, I would be in favor of scaling back what firms claim to be doing, given uh, the, the evidence about the limitations of those activities, um, I think we should also promote experimentation. So something like what Reebok did in uh, trying to elect union representatives in China, although it was a failure, um, it was quite provocative. Some have suggested that this, puts, this has put additional pressure on trade unions and governments in China to open up and to, uh, to think about at least becoming more democratic in the future. Um, however, it's clear that those experiments are not scalable or robust over time at the current point. So I'll stop there, and I'm really anxious to hear your comments and to open this up for further discussion. Thanks. Thank you.